Cricket Life Stories with me, Neil Kagram. Today we're joined by Simon Hughes. Simon, how's things going? Been interesting, Neil, uh, over the last year, covering cricket from home rather than from the ground. But, uh, you know, it's all right. It's, uh, it teaches you new skills. And as long as we're getting the message across and getting lots of good, interesting content out there, as you can see, I've to redesign one of my rooms to make it look a bit kind of crickety and uh you know a few talking points um, but generally lots going on actually especially in the sort of digital space uh, it's great to see cricket back on terrestrial tv so i've been doing a bit of work on that uh and uh i mean just generally selling the message of cricket being the great game yeah that's what it's all about so let's take it all the way back with yourself Talk us through how you got into the sport, how the interest sparked, and your earliest memories. The earliest memory of cricket was playing with my dad in the back garden. And we were just mucking around playing football and a bit of cricket, a bit of tennis on a Saturday afternoon when I was about nine. And yeah, we'd watched a bit of cricket on telly and all that, but I hadn't kind of taken it too seriously. And there was this screaming sound coming from up the road on a Saturday afternoon. And it sounded like someone being strangled. This sort of, ah, like this. So we thought, that's a bit weird. And then it happened again about 10 minutes later, a few times. And it did sound like someone being strangled. But anyway, we thought, well, we'd better go and see what this is. It sounds like some kind of event. So we went up the road to the local cricket club, which we'd never really been to before. And... Uh, there was a match on, obviously, and there was a, a big ginger-haired fast bowler bowling uh, and hitting people on the pads and screaming for LBW, and that was the noise we'd heard. And I don't know, we just kind of we rather liked the ground. It's, it was in Ealing, and it's the Ealing Cricket Club, which is a lovely traditional cricket ground with uh, an old pavilion and, you know, a kind of little ladies' pavilion, and it's just a nice setting. And we sort of got into it, and we watched it a bit, and... Then we went up the following week and, and the same. And so that sort of sparked my interest. And then my dad said, well, why don't we join? There's, there's obviously some Colts playing. Uh, and we inquired and they said, no, they don't take Colts till they're 12. So that was a bit of a shame. But what happened is after that is the next year we went up and I said I was 12, even though I was actually only about 10. And they let me join. And it was the beginning of a lifelong association with the club, both for me and my dad, who became a coach and was then associated with the club for 40 years, uh, coaching many quite well-known cricketers, as well as lots of club players and people, you know, young players and all that. So uh, that was how it started. Did you take to the art of fast bowling, swing bowling easily? Or was it something as a youth you had to work on a lot, hone your skills, a lot of drilling? Do you remember? Actually, I don't remember that much. All I do remember is that I liked, I liked the art of trying to bowl fast. Uh, I had uh, some natural ability. I obviously had something called fast twitch fibres, which is the, con the quick contractions of various muscles, which enables people to run fast, bowl fast, throw fast. Uh, and I, I found I had some ability I copied, uh, you know, the, the heroes around that time, I suppose the early 70s, the West Indies were some pretty good bowlers. There was Bob Willis had just started his career. John Snow I really liked. 
you know, some names from the, the, the real distant past. And then I saw Ian Botham when I was about 15 as well and really liked him. So, you know, those were my sort of formative influences. And I tried to bowl fast and I had quite a bit of success. So, you, as you mentioned there, fast twitch. Do you think fast bowling, part of it, a lot of it is to do with, you know, natural genetics as well? Something that you're kind of... Yeah, I, I, think, I think a lot of it is. I, I think you can make yourself faster. And obviously now there are more and more drills and there's more and more understanding about what makes a, a bowler bowl fast. In those days, there was very little coaching. It was pretty much trial and error. But I, I think there is a... You start with a natural ingredient which is enabling you to bowl fast and there are some people like my son for instance one of my sons the oldest one tries really hard to bowl fast but it just doesn't come out fast whereas ironically my daughter who is a talented cricketer she can bowl fast just naturally so you 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 have the natural raw material but then obviously you can enhance that to certain levels and then you came how did Middlesex um, spot your talents I know you came through the youth system did you go mm. for early trials who do you remember your the, the first person the first coach that kind of said look you've got I started got going to um I started going to sessions at Lords when I was probably 11 and they used to have uh, Easter coaching classes uh, in the nursery ground what they called under the arbors there was old kind of car parking space which is concrete and they used to run sort of junior classes there at Easter. And I met a couple of sort of young-ish Middlesex players who were doing the coaching. Uh, I then got into the Middlesex under 12s. Well, actually, no, I got into the Middlesex under 13s, I think, and played a couple of games for them. And there was a progression. And then actually, when I was 15, I didn't get picked and kind of got overlooked. Maybe I'd, I was a bit small at the time and hadn't really caught up with some of the other ones. But then when I got to 16, I did sprout up again and started bowling really quite fast, certainly at club and school level anyway. And so then I got picked for the Middlesex under 19s. And that was a, a lovely period, actually, because we used to go every year to Cambridge University to play a, a festival in August, a game every day. And I think that probably really uh, kind of drew me into, lured me into wanting to be a professional because... There were beautiful grounds and it was a high standard and it was really well organised. So playing at the Cambridge Festival every year in August was a beautiful kind of pinnacle of the season for an under-19 player. And then I progressed into the seconds and, and did quite well for them and then got a chance to play in the firsts. Am I correct in saying in between your schooling and your um, going to university, you also play some representative cricket in Sri Lanka? How was that again for your in terms of your experience, in terms of the playing side of things, as as well as like being a life experience as well at that age? I tell you what, it, it was transform it was transformative because I was uh, I just finished school, I had you know a few months off before the, uh, the, the my going to university, so I took myself off to Sri Lanka, which was brought about because my best friend was a Sri Lankan from school and so his family put me up and said you should come out and play in that in our club system so I went out and played probably nearly four months of club cricket in Sri Lanka and that was an incredible experience very high standard playing cricket literally every day it was winter in England 
but this was an opportunity to play every day, either practicing or, or playing matches. And so many lovely people. Uh, I kind of really grew from being quite a sort of lively junior bowler to being actually seriously quick for you know, even adults to face. And also it really uh, began my love affair with the subcontinent, with both uh, Sri Lanka, which is still probably my favourite country, and to a lesser extent, India. And the food and the culture and the people was so new and, and rewarding in so many ways that uh, I'm sort of now a complete addict to anything to do with India or Sri Lanka. And it made me, you know, actually a recognisably good cricketer who then went on to play professionally. So, you know, it was a huge influence on my life, that. And back home, you also touched on that you played in the second team for Middlesex. How did you find that environment? I've, taught, I've spoken to a lot of ex-professionals on this platform and they've talked about sometimes it's a doggy dog, dog environment given the competitive nature of it, people trying to get their contracts, first 11 players dropping down, almost trying to get form and trying to save their own careers. How did you find that experience playing second 11 cricket? It was a real mixture of people who were clearly ambitious and wanted to progress and those who were just happy being paid to lark about and play a bit of cricket because they had some talent. So it was funny. It wasn't easy, uh, in a way, relationships between us was, was a bit strange because, you know, I wanted to progress and I was quite ambitious, but you could easily be drawn in to the environment of players who just thought it was a lark and, um, you know, they were just killing time before getting a job as a car salesman or something, uh, just enjoying their youth, really. Uh, so it actually wasn't a, an easy environment to manage. It wasn't particularly professional. Although, you know, we are talking now 30, 40 years ago. So, you know, there was an excuse in a way. It's much more professional now. But then it felt like a, a bit of an amateur kind of operation, which you got paid a little bit of money for. There wasn't much money. It was pittance, really. But some people thought, well, this is great. We're being paid to play for cricket and uh, enjoy ourselves and get put up in a hotel and get a few expenses to get a couple of beers and some fish and chips at night. They were loving it. I just I never thought that was going to be my limit. I always wanted to progress. And unfortunately, I did. And you played in you know, the great era, the great Middlesex era, that decade, <laughs> 80s and 90s, was it? Four championship wins, three one-day trophies. What, in your opinion, looking back, made up that great side? What ingredients made up such a winning machine that was Middlesex in that, that era? Number one, talent. Some amazingly good players. At times, I was the only non-international playing in that eleven, And there were international players, obviously English, but also West Indian. We had a South African one year. We had an Australian, Jeff Thompson, played for us. So there was an incredible elite level of performance. And I think the other thing was this, this sort of desire to win. Uh, which was begun, uh, 
under Mike Brearley, who took over as Middlesex captain before I started in the mid-70s and brought in a, a sort of winning mindset. And then after that, Mike Gatting take, took that on. So there was always a drive and ambition to, to be successful. And you'd think, wouldn't you, that all county players would think like that, but they didn't. When I then went on, played for Durham later on, you know, there were lots of players there who, again, were just enjoying it and didn't have that much ambition, really. They just had a bit of fun. But the Middlesex team were motivated by winning matches and titles. And I think also playing at Lords had an influence because, you know, it's the home of cricket and you, you don't want to let people down. You never know who might be watching. The, 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 the governing body, the ECB, which was then called the TCCB, was based at Lords. So there would always be quite influential people there, selectors, chairmen, etc. So you never knew who might be watching. So you felt you owed it to the environment to perform at your best. So it was very motivating. So what was the standout moment when you look back for yourself personally during that period? Sadly, uh, sadly, we never won the championship or sealed the championship at Lords. And when Middlesex won the championship in 2016, I think it was. That was the first time that they'd won the championship at home when they beat Yorkshire. You're, usually we won the championship away because the last few matches of the season nearly always were away from Lords. So that, that was a slightly mixed experience, winning the championship. I did take the last two wickets of our championship winning uh, run in 1990, which was a, a, nice, ex, a nice experience. And funnily enough, there were two wickets in two balls. I, I took the last two Sussex wickets in two balls to win the, the match and the title. So that was nice. From a kind of one-off, I, I think probably the Benson and Hedges final of 1986 was my best performance because it was a big game. It was a big day, centre point of the season, Benson and Hedges final, full crowd at Lords, massive audience on TV. We were playing Kent, who were my childhood favourites. I, I supported Kent as a kid. I knew quite a lot of their players quite well. I had good friendships with them. And we had a, a very good side and we played a, an excellent tournament and we got to the final and we were the favourites, but we, uh, we had to bowl well to, to ensure we won. And there was quite a lot of pressure, obviously, on you know, living up to our expectations. I came on to bowl after uh, an opening burst from Wayne Daniel and Norman Cowns, both international cricketers. You know, I could have been the weak link but I actually bowled really well, took an early wicket, um, didn't let the pressure up and, and then had to hold my nerve at the end when they needed about 12 to win off the last over in pouring rain. And my third ball was hit for six, a bit like Joffre Archer in the World Cup final. But I managed to hold it together and we won. And uh, so that was an exhilarating feeling. And you also, during that period as well, you had time playing abroad, say in South Africa, was it Trans Transvaal? And also you had some time, yeah. um, was it Grafton Cricket Club in yes. Auckland? How yeah, was I, that again I, I, as, as an experience? And again, is that something that you'd recommend any modern day player now, obviously when restrictions are lifted to go out, experience different conditions, to hone your, hone your skills in the professional game? Massively, uh, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, just the variety of conditions and 
situations that you find yourself in and different styles of play and all that. But also, I think uh, responsibility, you, you're brought in to usually a club environment, sometimes a first class environment to produce the goods as the overseas pro, you know, and, and that in, in itself brings a certain level of responsibility, which you have to deliver on. So that, that, that's why it's a really good experience. And, and just sort of seeing another culture as well and another way of playing the game. So I actually used cricket as a means to travel. I, I felt uh, it, it, it was a great opportunity to see the world and play cricket at the same time. So I sort of did go to quite different places. I started in South Africa, as you mentioned, and played a season with Northern Transvaal in the Curry Cup, which is incredibly high standard with the greats of, of the South African cricket playing still people like Barry Richards and Mike Proctor and, and others. And then I started playing more club cricket around the world. I played in Durban. I then played in New Zealand twice. Uh, I went to Australia and played two seasons in different parts of Australia, one in Perth and one in Sydney. So, yeah, I, I mean, it was a really enriching experience, both from a playing point of view and also just from a, a travelling, you know, travel broadens the mind. Uh, it definitely made me a more rounded person and a better cricketer. At the back end of your career, how did the move to Durham come about? I know you went to university there, but then to end your playing career up north, perfect synergy? Well, it was partly uh, forced on me because I got injured in 91 and then I got released uh, after that, partly because I hadn't had a very effective season. And that was a, kind of disappointing. But then Durham were announced as a new county and I thought, well, there's a lot of sense in seeing if they're interested in me because I was in Durham as a university student and loved the, the, the place, was had a real sort of affinity with it. So, yeah, I got talking to them. They were keen. Uh, and so, I, and I also thought, uh, as, as Ian Botham had been announced as, as one of their main signings, I thought it would be fascinating to, to play alongside the guy who I hero-worshipped when I was a kid. And so it seemed like a really obvious move. And I loved every minute of it. It was fascinating and hugely enjoyable. Not very successful, but, but a different sort of experience. And it very much laid the groundwork for Durham then becoming a real force in the game. And uh, although they've had difficulties over the last few years financially, they still produce tremendous cricketers. The, the, the obvious one of which clearly is Ben Stokes, who I know actually came from New Zealand via Cumbria, but, but Durham very much kind of fine-tuned his skills and they have an amazing record at producing England cricketers. So it was, it, that was the start of it and it was, a, it was a great time to be involved. And then when retirement came, were you ready to give up the game mentally? And also I know you went into writing pretty much straight away. Is that something that you always had in the back of your mind that that's the route you wanted to go down? From the age of about 23, I was always writing. I found the game, you know, endlessly fascinating. In fact, it goes back even before that to when I was at school and I used to write reports of school matches and then read them out in assembly. So, you know, it's always been there, I think. And 
when I was in the mid-20s, I started writing columns. When I got to mid-30s or early 30s, and I was really writing quite a lot, I did start thinking about it as a future. I probably wasn't ready to retire age 33. I could have done another couple of years, but I was offered a really great job in the media and thought, well, if I leave it too long, someone else is going to take that job. And I'm not getting any fitter or faster. If anything, I'm getting slower. So it probably was a good time to, to move on. I think it's not as easy to change career sort of in your late 30s or early 40s, but in your early 30s or mid 30s, it probably is easier. So, well, I've had longer now in the media than I had as a professional cricketer. So it, it was a good thing to do. I, I think I had another couple of years that I could have played, but you'd rather leave leaving them wanting more than being hanging around and, uh, you know, sort of people kind of really thinking they'd like to get rid of you. Yeah, was it the Cricketer Diary at the at the Independent? Was another column. You've also written, I was it nine books currently? Am I correct in saying as well? So well, I far? think it's I think it's actually ten. Um, ten. One wow. of them, well, one of them isn't under my name. I did a diary with Andrew Strauss when England won the Ashes in 2010-11. So you could say nine under my name and one that's a sort of ghost-written book. And then the analyst position, Channel 4, I know we mentioned at the top, cricket currently back on terrestrial TV. That famous 99 to 2005 period. How did the uh, the analyst position come about? Was it always seemed from the outside that you were actually the main man that kind of was almost ahead of the, the times as such in terms of the, anal- the in-depth analysis that... Um, that was involved that was being shown can you remember mm. how, how it all went back then well i i, I can tell you exactly what what happened uh, in the mid 90s i was working for the bbc on their test match coverage and i didn't really have a lot to do because i was a, basically a reporter i wasn't a commentator much so most of the day of a test match i'd be standing around with nothing much to do until the post-match interviews or whatever which i did so I was trying to find ways of you know, killing time and where to spend the day. Didn't really have a seat in the commentary box. So I spent a lot of time with the, the producers, with the VT, the videotape operators, in a couple of trucks right out the back. And I found that environment really interesting because I could see how they were doing replays and how they were doing graphics and how the whole system worked. And it gave me ideas. I could see stuff, for instance, that wasn't going to air. You know, cameras that were shooting you know, live action, but that particular camera wasn't cut to the action. And I could see them picking up stuff that wasn't being seen. So I started coming up with ideas for features and offering them to the BBC. And the BBC saying, well, we haven't really got space for it. Where people just want to watch the live action. So then when Channel 4 won the rights in... 99 I went straight to them and said I think there's a massive opportunity here to demystify the game use lots of different angles and graphics and and other uh, techniques to explore the, the the kind of great variety of the game and they thought well this is a great idea so why don't we try putting you in a truck and you can work with all the the operators the camera angles and the, the, the replay operators and see what you come up with 
and basically that's how it started. And then Hawkeye, the guy who invented Hawkeye, Paul Hawkins, he saw our coverage and he saw that we were going into the game in more depth. And he thought, I, th I think I can add to this. I can create some virtual reality, which, you know, even takes the analysis of the game on a bit, a bit further. So it was a sort of meeting of various minds, really, that made that analyst position work. And, yeah, I think it was quite groundbreaking. And, you know, other sports copied it. And now it's part of the furniture. But then it, it was quite new. What do you think is going to be the next great innovation in terms of cricket broadcasting that you kind of see and, and envisage? That's a really good question. Um, well, what I'd like to do is bring home to the viewer how exciting and dangerous it is to face these top-class bowlers. And yes, fast bowlers being one, but maybe even spinners as well, how difficult it is. Because I don't think the TV pictures have ever really sold that. You know, it, it all looks a little bit too easy in a way. So uh, what I've been looking into and haven't got very far with, to be honest, is virtual reality and a sort of headset type uh, experience where you can actually face these balls for real, but virtually real anyway. So you wear the headset, you have a bat, you feel that you're in a real environment, there's a crowd noise in your ear, you can see the stands around your vision, and then you face up to Jofra Archer, an avatar of Jofra Archer running into bowl, and the ball comes down and you have to play it, and it hits the bat, or misses the bat, and the fielders run after it, and you get a certain amount of runs, or you get bowled, or whatever. So I would like to try and bring that experience to the viewer, somehow getting them closer to what it's really like to face test bowlers. No, that, would be, that would be amazing. You're also currently the editor of The Cricketer. For any youngster looking at this, perhaps, that wants to get into sports and specifically cricket journalism any tips you can give for them just to say actually it, it's interestingly it's the 100th anniversary uh, of the cricketer in a month's time so we're bringing out a special commemorative issue which celebrates 100 years of the magazine so it's had an amazing ride and it's a privilege to to work on it and be be the editor of it and we keep trying to find new ways, new stories, new features, new personalities to, to focus on, new techniques, etc. Um, and and it's, a, it's a really exciting product to work on because there's a very good website to do with it as well. Um, as far as future of journalism, I, I mean, what you're looking for is expert knowledge and passion, I think. So if you can show as a young writer or broadcaster a particular knowledge of I would say an individual player or a particular kind of part of the game that, that, that fascinates you and you can convey that passion by firstly knowing about it and, and having something different to say about it and then presenting that in uh, an attractive way either by writing it well or by uh, obviously broadcasting it uh, I, I think that is the, a selling point. So your USP as a young broadcaster or writer is 
a really intimate knowledge of something and and a passion you know and there's so much uh, information data you know background info now about players and actually you know they're reasonably accessible cricketers as well I, I mean I run this podcast series we get players on it all the time who love telling their stories I mean only the other day we had Stephen Finn on for instance who was talking about his anxieties as a player uh, in, in, in the England side and how he dealt with that that uh, they all have really good stories to tell. So, yeah, it's about identifying players or aspects of the game that really interest you and finding something new to say about them. Yeah, I was going to mention, so you've got a couple of podcasts, haven't you? One with Simon Mann and uh, one you're talking about with Stephen Finn. Was it the Virtual Cricket Club as well? Which is a small fee, but it yeah. goes to clarity. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's called the. Somebody came up with the idea. I don't know how he came up with this plan, but it's actually called World's Best Cricket Club, uh, worldsbestcricketclub.com. And basically, I thought uh, in about September, I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of club cricketers that uh, are going to be missing going for nets or meeting up at the club at a, on a Friday night for a, for a beer or a chat or whatever. Uh, there's a lot of players knocking around with nothing to do. Uh, why don't I create this virtual cricket club where I interview a player each week and we do a little quiz with them as well. And uh, we try and get as many club members or club supporters or county supporters as possible to join. And they give a little bit of money to the Professional Cricketers Trust, which is a charity that supports cricketers who, who need help. So it seemed to be a win-win situation because it would give club members who had nothing to do and no kind of cricket chat to enjoy something to look forward to each week. And it would give the players a platform to chat about their lives. And it was raising money, a bit of money for charity. So we started that in October and we've been delighted actually at the number of players, England players we've had on it and their, their efforts you know, being brilliant. Last week, we actually had Ian Botham on and um, he did a wine tasting. Uh, so a virtual wine tasting. So it, it's been a really good thing to do. And the more members we can get for that, the better, because everybody enjoys it and it's giving more money to the charity. Yeah, but I'll definitely put the, the links uh, in the description below of this video. So whoever's watching this, please do check it out. Uh, but Simon, perfect. Thank you very much for your time today. Fantastic talking through your career and all the best for the for the months and years ahead. So thank you. Well, Neil, thanks. Thanks very much. And, and same to you as well. And, and well done for your your enterprise here. It's, it's a good thing to do. Perfect. So Neil Kagram, Cricket Life Stories, Simon Hughes. Thank you.